This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. This is a recording of the third presentation in the panel session Creeping Crises from Emergency to Development, chaired by Dr Eileen Pittaway, founding director of the Centre for Refugee Research at UNSW. This presentation by Associate Professor Claudia Tazwriter from the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at UNSW is entitled A Crisis of Political Imaginary, Categorising Mobile Populations and the Ambivalence of a Categorised Life. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, can you hear me at the back? Yeah? Okay. So first of all, I'd like to say thank you to Jane for inviting me um, to speak today. And um, without further ado, I will just, I will launch into what I want to say. Donald Trump is the US president-elect, <laughs> and the British people voted to leave the European Union. Marine Le Pen, leader of the Front National, is currently the forerunner in France's presidential elections to be held in 2017. In Austria, Norbert Hofer of the far-right Freedom Party may well be the new president after rerun elections, which will be held in early December. I could list many other examples of nation-states in various parts of the world where return to such neo-nationalist anti-immigrant rhetoric has not only been a fringe irritation, but is having demonstrable impact on government policy, on legislative agendas and public attitudes, as well as on the everyday life in uh, towns, cities and neighbourhoods. In many parts of the world, immigrants and most recently refugees and asylum seekers are the focus of such hate talk and punitive policies. This is also uh, certainly true, sadly, here in Australia, confounding in a successful multicultural immigrant society. I want to challenge the notion of refugee arrivals as crisis. Rather, I see the crisis as one of political imaginary. So my talk has it at its heart the circumstances of refugees through considering time as a concept and also as a technique conditioning the social context of relationships, as well as of the administrative context of the state. Time is experienced socially in making and remaking human communities, identities and relational connections through past, present and future orientation. Time is also a very modern system of rationalities imposed on humans in various disciplining techniques. What I will argue for is a broader recognition of the shared element of human experience and sociality and to highlight the effects of the dominant economic system, neoliberal capital, in atomising and eroding cooperation and fellow feeling. In the context of refugee arrivals, this atomising is evident as social distance that leads us to turn away from the harms of indefinite offshore detention, of interdiction, pushbacks, and so on, that we know only too well in the Australian context. The Australian government's Operation Sovereign Borders has, for example, effectively frozen time for asylum seekers, 
taking away the capacity for future horizons and dehumanising life in the present. Time has a sociological context, both as a key aspect of human sociality and as a device of capitalist accumulation and the contemporary global political economy. First, human sociability means that time moderates how humans organise and structure life and its living into communities, villages, later, historically, into nation-states, towns, cities, suburbs, and now also enclaves, and so on. What I'm pointing to here is the human capacity for future orientation, planning, the deferral of wants and desires in the present, and importantly, the use of individual, social and collective memories and memory-making processes that accumulate to shape how the present is actualised, experienced and lived. Human life is marked through the life course, through generations and the relation and dependencies between those generations. We need each other to survive, evident in sharp relief at the two ends of human life and at various points of vulnerability in between, illness, disability, unemployment. Things that we, or those for whom we care, all experience at some point. For irregular migrants, time is experienced through the withdrawal of such normal life, through the weight of being in non-places of detention, removal and non-resolution. In these zones of exception, time is truly frozen and discontinuous. In this sense, we can say the people in such circumstances are disappeared. The freezing or suspension of time has the effect of erasure. That is, the irregular migrant, the person without rights and with the visibilities that rights and belonging grant, is incrementally removed from the imaginary of those living in real time, us here, with a past, a present and a future. The collective we that have a passport or passports and citizenship or citizenships in countries that count, that matter, are more easily, uh, we more easily overlook, set aside, cannot even imagine the circumstances of those who have a life experience outside what seems possible and imaginable. Can we imagine losing three years or five years of life? Having that time suspended with no normal, uh, no normality of social, cultural, relational flows. No planning for the months and years ahead, crafting the development of life and capabilities for self, family, community. Such a person and such an experience is outside the realm of the possible and the imaginable. It raises a barrier that, like a membrane, over time thickens, becomes opaque and hardens like the patina of time. And that returns me to Trump's Americans. The long-term unemployed on the scrap heap of post-industrial modernity also experience a kind of disappearance, an invisibility, in the freezing of time through long-term unemployment, though I'm in no way suggesting an equivalence with the experience of asylum seekers stuck in transit in Indonesia and Malaysia, for example, much less those subject to Australia's extreme policies of offshore disappearance in indefinite detention. Cataclysms of change, revolutions and wars always reference time. The past and contested collective memories of the past are often central to, indeed, most often the root causes of wars and conflict. 
The most radical change human societies have undergone, though, is through industrialisation and the technologisation of life. Most recently, our very relations have altered in a fundamental way, for example, through object relations. Our devices have become our closest friends. For many post-industrial elites, but also the remaining hollowed-out middle class, object relations often trump other forms of relations, and pardon the pun. Um, so industrial capitalism, since about the mid-18th century, has captured all of us through the allocation of value, through bureaucratic and administrative allocation of time. So understood, for example, as um, the lawyers in the room will know as billable hours, and not just hours, but minutes. In addition, the socio-philosophical concept of time-space compression, which we colloquially call globalisation, has had considerable impact on how we live. Think of the global reach of technologies that transmit signs, signals, meaning, information and money in compressed milliseconds. This new experience of time is at the same moment liberating and enslaving. It's salient to be reminded of the Marxian prediction highlighted by the writer Marshall Berman's analysis of late modernity, so the period we're still living through. And I'll quote, all fixed, fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new-formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. And men and women are at last compelled to face with sober senses their real conditions of life and their relations with their kind. I turn now briefly to draw on two recent projects that I've been involved in, um, with asylum seekers in transit in both Indonesia and Malaysia to highlight their experience of time. Asylum seekers as irregular migrants are living a kind of permanent impermanence in transit. So they're stuck in a sense. The Indonesian research was conducted with Iranian and Afghani asylum seekers in multiple locations in Indonesia during 2014 and the Malaysian research was conducted in late 2015 also in multiple locations with Rohingya women. During the interviews, difficulties experienced during this life in transit were explained by the asylum seekers as resulting from their irregular status, which led to an inability to work and therefore to generate an income. Subsequently, many asylum seekers living in the community reported financial difficulties and stress, homesickness for family, friends, community left behind, and the uncertainty of how long they would remain in transit. Transit was understood as either waiting um, to journey to Australia by boat or another destination, or waiting for an outcome from UNHCR asylum and resettlement processing. Um, Indonesia was talked about as a place of transit en route to another country of safety. Most of the respondents did not anticipate having to stay in Indonesia for a long period of time, thinking that transit would be a matter of days or weeks. However, on learning of the closed boat passages to Australia and limited access to UNHCR registration, many of the respondents experienced long periods of transit. So I'll turn to just a few snippets from voices from these asylum seekers. An Iranian man said, it's relatively hard I'm just staying until the time comes for me to go. Everyone here is in the same situation. We are all waiting. 
Three Afghani men reflected, we are not living here. We are just taking a breath. We are just breathing here. We don't have a life of a human, so please help us. We lack financial support. We are jobless. We cannot work. We do not have the right to work. We have heard about lots of people who have spent two years here. And then what shall I say? They go crazy because of this situation. They have a lot of psychological problems. You have to wait and you don't have money. A young Iranian couple said, here we are so much frustrated, we cannot make a living. Our children don't go to school, our children cannot get an education, we cannot pay, we cannot afford medical treatment. Uh, and we have become frustrated. Have, we have made our life here very difficult. Those are the main problems. So I'll just turn briefly to tell you a little bit about the Malaysian experience with Rohingya women asylum seekers who are similarly in transit in Malaysia and essentially stuck. Despite the fact that the majority of the women in the study, this was a sample of 350, had intended Malaysia to be their final destination when they left Myanmar, when they fled, the difficulty of life for Rohingya in Malaysia was unexpected for many. So over 90% reported they had no form of income in Malaysia. Again, they're not permitted to work. And 77% reported that they had no access to health care. Just over half had UNHCR identification cards, though such documentation doesn't allow them to work legally nor to access medical care. So these statistics also reflect, uh, were reflected in the women's descriptions of their daily difficulties of life in Malaysia the precarious nature of their status as illegal immigrants, according to Malaysian law, and the impacts on quality of life. Yet overwhelmingly, the insecure nature of their existence, um, of irregular, irregular migration and their lack of income and access to healthcare, uh, were strong drivers for onward migration from Malaysia. So I'm just going to move to another part of the paper, but the point here really being that this research found that were there more secure reasons, um, more secure daily life for them in Malaysia, some access to a subsistence living, they wouldn't try to make onward journeys. And I think that's an important point for the Australian government to also reflect on. So in conclusion, to return to where I began, there are two points that I would like to stress. First, to turn to the hollowed out middle class and the discarded blue collar workers that appear to have largely led to the election of Donald Trump. They are certainly not in the same circumstances as, for example, the surplus population that Mike Davis referred to over a decade ago in his critique of developing society contexts. contexts. Yet their lives feel similarly um, in terms of loss of control, loss of visibility and any predictability for the future. Trump's disaffected blue-collar and lower-middle-class Americans have one important feature in common with asylum seekers also, and that is that they have lost future horizons and are also, in a way, frozen in time, though, of course, to reiterate the point I made earlier, I'm not suggesting that their everyday lives are in any way comparable. So Trump's Americans have liberty of person and also an existential presence. Um, both of which have been stripped away from asylum seekers. Nevertheless, global wage equalisation experienced in both job losses and manufacturing and other industries having offshored over the last three to four decades, leaving the rust belt, means that a growing subclass is also experiencing this kind of frozen time. 
Second, the argument I've built, though admittedly in a very preliminary fashion, due to the constraints of time, is to suggest that the typologies of crisis, so be it migrant crisis, refugee crisis, are political creations of nation states and also fostered through the intergovernmental system that also self-referentially feeds the machine, uh, the machine of capitalist accumulation, which today, at the sharp end of the neoliberal project, is also beginning to feed on itself. But that is a much larger argument. And to get back to the matter at hand, what I want to suggest is working from a bottom-up perspective, from our everyday lives, and to highlight what we have in common, such as the central part that time plays in our social lives, that we live with the past rather than despite it, that future orientation, planning, imagining and creatively working on tomorrows rather than being stuck in a repeat feed present is what makes us truly human. So for me, there is no existential crisis because of human mobility and certainly not because of the 60, 65 million displaced persons and refugees. The existential crisis of our times, rather, is climate change and the reminder that in, ensues of our collective turning away from the excesses of consumption, of rampant wage differentials over not just decades but centuries, and the stripping of natural resources, for example, from indigenous populations and lands without proper recompense. The focus on irregular arrivals as the crisis point for countries such as Australia, enacted through punishing people due to their mode of arrival, is actually a diversion from the pressing problems and abuses that, if unchecked, do point to an end-time scenario. But my paper has also, also has a hopeful message, um, and I'd like to end with that. So, and I turn it into a question for you all. Is it possible to imagine a different kind of politics, one where what is common among persons is brought to the fore, a politics that recognises a, a becoming world, this would mean recognising we are all constantly in creation and recreation with other social beings. Such a politics of becoming does not rest merely on empathy with the asylum seeker, frozen in time, but rather prioritises fundamental shift in subjectivity, our subjectivity. So realigning the me as well as the us of inward-looking neo-nationalism, for example, to the we, the whole not the sum of its parts that's premised always in reference to the outsider, the other. And all of this is to foster a political will that might prioritise continuities over discontinuities and flows over ruptures. Thank you.